We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And you're listening. Caption Satellite, don't make time for this. Proudly part of the Eurostep Podcast Network and the Blue Wire Podcast family. We're back. We, not by design, ended up taking a week off. Um, but we've, you know, we've got back around to the episode that we had planned all along. Um, which is on the surface probably gonna seem a little weird to people who maybe don't listen to our pod or to people who do listen to our pod and maybe don't even know all the ins and outs of this so let's let's get right into it and let's explain what we're doing here i guess if you want to say this is an episode on a given movie um well it may not be the most accurate thing you've ever said but if if we were to say it this is an episode about Peter Pan and Wendy and the latest live action Disney remake or reimagining probably a better way of putting this one, except this is one that went straight to Disney plus didn't even go to theaters. Um, Andrew and Adam, you might say that sounds like a pretty weird thing for this particular podcast to devote an episode to. And you're right on that, except not very far below the surface you get to the root of why we both watch this, both got our thoughts together and here to talk about it, and more specifically, its director and the trajectory of his career. Peter Pan and Wendy is directed by David Lowry, who is, I think, truly one of the favorites of this pod. Is, is that in our previous iteration? Does that seem fair to you, Andrew? Hi, Andrew, by the way. I'm still kind of introducing things, but I might as well say hello to you as well. Uh, yeah, it's. I think it's pretty fair. Like, I, I don't think he's uh, someone in, like, the uh, like top, top, top tier of my favorite directors in terms of having several of my favorite films, but he's got one of my favorite films of the last six years. Uh, 
So, and just like overall degree of competence from him and knowing that he's making something, I'm going to at least have like a lot of time for it. I think it's fair. So he's got a, a pretty reasonable bar for me. And I rewatched most of his movies this week, and and that's certainly been true. I I don't know. For me, there's always there's kind of tears to this, where he definitely feels like one of my favorite directors. Which, in saying that, that's disregarding a whole bunch of people who are much more obviously among my favorite directors if you get what i'm saying but it's it's not even this so i don't want to play on this too much particularly as we're using a disney film that he's just made to do this but he's like he's like a maybe creeping into the mid-tiers indie band that i've been in on since you know not quite ground floor, because I still can't get my hands on St. Nick. Um, but pretty much ground floor. I signed Embody Saints in theaters and remember being pretty taken by it 10 years ago now. Um, and he's he's climbing the ranks and he's knocking it out of the park. And I think there could be a case he made that one of the best films of the 2010s was his. Um I say it just could be a case he made. I think you and I would make that case. And so I like I'm always looking out for him and I'm rooting for him, if that makes sense, in a way that like it's 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 not like, oh yeah, it's the new film from Martin Scorsese or Quentin Tarantino, or like in an obvious this is a top-line filmmaker way. But I think in terms of filmmakers or maybe the investment is a little bit more personal which to this often just comes from like a certain film here or there like another person that i would group with that now and there are more films and but mike mike mills is kind of in this category for me too where it's like if mike mills is doing something like that's probably going to be my most anticipated film of a given year now i'm not saying that was the case with peter pan and wendy uh, could be with Larry's next project, but that's kind of how I would paint my relationship and maybe our relationship, the pod's relationship to Larry, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's very fair. I think it, it is safe to say that the, the best way you described it is we're rooting for David Lowry and always going to be intrigued by the types of films he makes specifically because of how his career's developed. And I I remember I think I saw Ain't Them Body Saints not in theaters but with my brother somewhere or, or per his recommendation because he was he just kept being like, You gotta see this movie and I kept uh at first thinking he was talking about the Boondock Saints and I was like, I don't think that's for me and that's <laughs> like that's been out for years. Like oh, like if I haven't gotten around to that I'm never gonna get around to it. And then I saw it and I really enjoyed it. Uh, but yeah, yeah, we're we're uh, we're Lowry guys. That's safe to say. Yeah, and as I alluded to, I mean, the purpose of this episode is really to just—it's to talk about Lowry. It's to talk about his career, but it's also to use him as kind of a an interesting template or what it would be nice to see emerge as more of an archetype. Which it feels quite new and revolutionary, but the truth is, this is very old school. Um, this is literally how Hollywood used to run at a certain point, and 
using Hollywood for a filmmaker like Larry is kind of interesting because it's goes kind of it goes beyond that. He's almost making half of his films in the most powerful kind of corner of Hollywood, and then he's making other films outside of Hollywood are pretty close to that. But so much of our conversation gets devoted to, I guess, the way that the movie industry has shaped and reshaped and evolved. And I guess how underwhelmed and gradually more and more exhausted you and I are by certain kinds of films that tend to dominate at the box office. And I guess just this idea of, I don't know, why can't we have more and why it seems pretty clear the studios are not going to give us more as in, I don't mean more volume in terms of what they're making, but I mean a more varied mix. Why why can't they produce in a way that is just smarter for the audience? And by that, I mean, for example, to be clear on this, for example, that if superhero movies are the dominant movie of this era, I'll say at this moment that they probably still are. We could be on the way out of that, but we're coming, you know, pretty hot on the heels of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 being released and box office returns globally are very healthy for it. Do we need all of the other superhero movies, though? Do we need just as many as we're getting? Would it not be better to have fewer, but to make them really good, Andrew? To make them great, so that every time someone is going to see a superhero movie, they're like, you know what? that works it works for me this is all very idealistic pie in the sky i get that um and then what that does is it creates more of a balance and you get more horror more comedy more drama there's just more for everyone and with that maybe a more kind of equitable sharing around of i'm gonna make this kind of film and i'm gonna make this kind of film between a lot of the most talented directors which what it feels like happens now is if you are an indie filmmaker, you are very likely going down one of two paths. You either make your indie films until the opportunity comes where you can make a big jump up and then you are just part of a greater machine. Could be Marvel, could be Star Wars, could be DC, could be whatever. But you're either just you're making your indies and then you make that jump and then you're that's all you make. Or you just keep making indies your entire career. You're going to keep making indies. You could be, I don't know, Kelly Reichert, where you're clearly one of the most gifted directors of your generation. But the reality is, does the average person have even the slightest idea of who you are or what your films are? No. Um, is that ever really going to change? Is awards recognition going to come? No. That's one path. And I just want more of, I don't know, I want more fluidity. I, I think there's a, a longer track record of filmmakers and we could really go back through eras of mixing things up and taking on different kinds of projects and from all things benefiting from that. And we've moved very far away from that and I think that's, some of what is so uninspiring for me about 
I will use it again as the example, not to pick on it, but superhero movies is like, if you look at Marvel, like directors like the Russos, not great guys. I mean, I, I think you only have to look at the pretty, uh, what way will I say this? That is not incredibly unkind, Andrew. Um, just look at the response, honestly, post Endgame from them becoming the most powerful people in Hollywood to pretty much everything they've made. It has not been good. I just, there are not super fans in droves out there for what they're making, whether that be Cherry for Apple TV Plus, Citadel, their new series has just dropped on Prime. Um, I'm forgetting the gray man was that the absolutely god awful netflix movie they made one of the worst movies i've ever seen maybe like that's not, they're not it that's not it if that's if that's the kind of director or if it's only a certain kind of director is going to get a chance to make those movies and it's like oh you know they just they just know all these moving parts they know what to steer the ship guess what they're moving parts in all movies and you're not going to make the most interesting stuff if it's as black and white and likewise i'd like to think that filmmakers like the russos there is the flexibility where they can seamlessly go from one to the other and be like we've got this really small project that we want to direct and feel great about like maybe that's cherry maybe that's not ideal but i think there's just something much healthier about the idea of like i don't know the hollywood ecosystem if directors are more inclined to be like, you know what, I'll take one for them and I'll then get my one for me. That used to be in part how this would work and you would get people who were kind of really bold, interesting or visionary directors who would take jobs essentially on some studio fair that is not necessarily what they most want to do, but they could elevate it just by way of who they are and how they make films. And I think when we're just into this kind of, you get funneled off over here and you get funneled off over here. And 90% of the time, those two things are not going to meet in the middle. I think that's a pretty bad spot to be in. I think it shows in a lot of the kind of big budget blockbuster filmmaking if we're to go beyond genre. So to circle back to Lowry, for anyone who doesn't know, I'll read. I'll just read through David Larry's feature directorial filmography right now. In 2009, he made his feature debut um, with the self-funded Saint Nick, ultra low budget. Followed up in 2013 with Ain't Them Body Saints, which we just made reference to, a film starring Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara. That was. I guess wasn't quite like true studio Weinstein company production distributed by IFC box office was only a million dollars that's wild felt like that got a bigger release I saw it in a multiplex here um, but I guess that wasn't the case might have been an interesting time for the Weinstein company we don't need to dive into all of that follows up ain't that body saints with Pete's Dragon for Disney in 2016, um, remake of the 1977 animated film. One of the more kind of lesser known, bordering on obscure of the kind of Disney animated canon. And 
one of the kind of first ports of call they went to for this live action project, which was, actually makes a lot of sense and seemed a more interesting way of going about this rather than going just we've got to burn through all of our bona fide classic kind of all the bona fide classics of our animated library within 10 years we need to have live action versions of all of them they could have borrowed the vhs from me back in the day if they needed to do research so really were, were, you, were you a big pete's dragon guy i was my grandparents had it and then i'm pretty sure i stole it wow look at you i don't know if i've ever seen i i should probably address that but i can't remember as a kid ever seeing it um my memory hey, 20... is of it being pretty trippy, but I can't fully remember. It does have a reputation for being just a little bit on the weird side. Um, in 2017, off the back of making Pete's Dragon, highly acclaimed, also worth noting, a pretty good success, I want to say, too. Um, particularly for not the most famous piece of IP. $144 million gross off a $65 million budget. Uh, that certainly is a major leveling up for a director and to the point earlier it's the kind of jump that it seems like 99% of the time now if that progression came for a director they make anything body saints and they make Pete's Dragon it's well reviewed it makes money their next step is not to go and make a ghost story for A24 um, with an absolute skeleton crew in very controlled locations for a hundred thousand dollars. A ghost story is the film that I alluded to earlier when I said Andrew and I might make a case for one of David Larry's films being one of the very best of the 2010s. It is the film that I we both just bow down to. Um follows that up going back to studio filmmaking somewhat I mean Distributed ultimately by Fox Searchlight, so yeah, that's true studio. And makes The Old Man and the Gun, a film that really fell under the radar, but that I'll just go ahead and say is like really, really good. And when I guess the final chapter is written on, say, Robert Redford's career or Sissy Spacek's career, that is going to be something that people kind of look back to. And I think a film that could kind of in the, the longevity and kind of in the, the wider arc of movie history, people could look to as an interesting late career movie for those iconic actors. It's just a really, really good like crime film, but in a David Lowry tone, if that makes sense. And I love that one on rewatch, especially based on some of the episodes you and I have done in the past, Terrence Malick in particular. And I see a lot of Malick in a ghost story as well. Not maybe not directly, but there's something that spiritually that feels really connected there, but something like him just working with Redford and peach dragon. And then I imagine just seeing something else in him and his career. Like, obviously you work with them, you, you've seen the sting if you've seen movies and then you just realize that whether Rod weathered uh, Robert Redford with all that charm and charisma that he's got can fit in this perfectly to this role. And then to take Sissy Spacek from the Badlands, obviously, we've seen a different version of her being in this role. I I 
could not have been more into the old man and the gun the second time I saw it, just as I deepened my film knowledge. And I think Lowry's knowledge of film probably is something that went into that as well. Just wanted to get that in there. <laughs> We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And he follows up the old man the gun by going... Back teaming up with A24 again, but with a much, much bigger budget, a $15 million budget, which is pretty big money for A24. Um, one of the biggest swings they had taken to date, along with everything everywhere all at once. I mean, these were kind of, I guess, the two most notable examples of them leaning into genre and giving kind of trusted filmmakers from their stable as such, who had worked with them before, the chance to really go and make something bigger. And with that opportunity, David Lowry made The Green Knight, um, adapted from the 14th century poem. Sir, I, I always trip up. Is it Gawain? Gawain? I, I, I didn't get to even rewatch this, so I'm not sure. Uh, and The Green Knight, apologies to all our hardcore, like, medieval fanatics out there. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of them amongst our listenership. The Green Knight is a film that went down very, very well. I think people really, really loved. Funnily enough, I wasn't quite there. I admire it. It's very good. It looked fantastic. Um, well, I believe it was all shot in Ireland, which that you know, doesn't hurt, Andrew. It doesn't hurt. Um, overall, though, maybe just not quite my thing. But a massively ambitious, bold swing... And one that seems like a lot of people got on its wavelength. And I think the just the level of filmmaking is undeniable in it. And that brings us to the present. Because what do you do when you've made your really weird, grown-up, medieval adventure epic? Well, you go back to Disney and you make Peter Pan and Wendy. What a what an unbelievably weird filmography and i say weird in like the most complimentary way possible because it's only weird because no one else 
seems to kind of put themselves in positions for this. And I don't want to make it sound like that every indie director has the chance to go and make Pete's Dragon or Peter Pan and Wendy and kind of make these jumps back and forth. But this is a space that Larry has fallen into. And to me, very few directors have kind of taken full advantage of the relationships they've built where Larry's just like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to go back and forth between Disney and A24, which, like, just even from a basic brand recognition standpoint and for getting your name out there and getting your movies out there, if you're making... Well, this might be a bad example because the most recent film was, you know, sidelined to Disney Plus. But generally, if you know, if you want to make a big studio movie and you want to try and get it seen by people, Disney are not the worst distributor um, to to have in your corner for that. Generally, Disney's stuff gets out there, gets seen, has a legacy, a, a, like a a long lasting life. Um, and A24 have kind of developed as the the premier indie distributor for, again, getting all kinds of films out to audiences that are maybe slightly beyond what you would expect for them, getting people interested, engaged, and I don't know. It's just it's a fascinating balance that Larry has been able to strike. Have you any thoughts on that before we kind of dive into how this works in terms of who he is as a filmmaker and why this is something that has made sense for him and he's been able to do pretty successfully? Um, have you any thoughts just in a general sense on this kind of arc and I guess leading to some of the stuff that I touched on? Just the fact that it's not something we see very often. Yeah, first of all, I'll give a genuine take in a moment. Uh, but first of all, I like to imagine Mickey Mouse being like, ha ha, a ghost story. We'll all be wormed in one day. Ha ha. Um, and then uh, you just love like, any any excuse to do your Mickey Mouse impression. Uh, Mickey Mouse from South Park is just one of my uh, all time favorite bits. Um, that being said, I am fascinated and encouraged by his. I don't know if cur- curiosity is the right word but being willing to tackle both different challenges because it's a challenge to have your off-the-beaten-path, idiosyncratic, weird, independent movie and just be given the license to make that and for have it to have it be critically acclaimed and have a degree of success to where you can continue having that career. So that's one train track that he's on. But then also like you said, just the volume of crap that's produced now in the genre that we'll call broadly consumed media, whether that's superhero movies or whether that's family movies. And for him to be able to come in having the career he's had and knowing the kind of interests uh, and influences and types of films he's made separate from Disney. And then just to be like, all right, I don't have to make weird Disney necessarily. I'm just going to make this like, really especially with these dragon this is just like gorgeous looking wholesome and completely endearing story that i've you know obviously studios involved in this as well that's well cast and well balanced and it's just like the type of movie that a family can go to on a friday night and uh 
everyone's going to enjoy it. And I, like I, I was watching Peach Dragon uh, yesterday before I saw the Guardians of the Galaxy, and I like that um, a, a lot, or not a lot more, but I like that slightly more than you did, which was surprised me. Um, but uh, uh, what, I like it. I like what's it less that? as time goes on. I <laughs> we don't need. I I had a listener no. in my DMs campaigning. <laughs> For us to do a Guardians of the Galaxy episode, I was like, I I just don't like it very much. And I think Andrew like is kind of like, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm mild not mild episode, thumbs right? up. I just I I don't yeah. know. I I don't like just the general. I guess of what our pod we try to advocate for things, and part of it is I don't think that movie needs our advocacy. And then if you've got nothing good to say about it, well, don't say anything at all. And that's honestly, it's not fully that. I didn't have a terrible time. I'll give my review. My review is best Marvel film in years, two and a half stars. You know, that's that's my review. It's like, I, yeah, it's not terrible. Sorry. But to your point, I mean, I think that's interesting that you watched Pete's Dragon before that. Because... Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is now essentially what you were just describing, which is if you wanted, if you had like a youngish family and everyone was going, you're all going to the theater and it's like, okay, let's go and see a movie and we're all going to have fun. Like maybe Guardians is the closest that that's going to get now. My God, I find that so grim because I, I just. It's it's doing so much, working so hard to work on so many different levels for everyone. This is you've you've worked me into a way where I'm half doing a Guardians partner. I was but, going to talk about how that Guardians was supposed to be the endearing or like moving emotional uh, into this trilogy, and I was much more moved by Pete's Dragon. I saw my dog sleeping on the uh, the couch next to me while I was watching it, and I was like, you know what, our relationship is a lot like this. But one of those things is more deeply rooted in actual human emotion in a way yeah. that is, is not as kind of cajoled and forced. And I think like internet brain adult, like here's a song, you know, 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 and you're going to come out of this and be like, yeah, what a great time that was. I like all those songs. They um, didn't play the chain. They can't fool me. <laughs> Which, you know what? I love how they play the chain. Lost lost a grip on how songs were actually fitting into. Found creative ways to get away with the just constant bombardment that needle drops through the first two. And I guess, for whatever reason, it was like, eh, we're good. We'll just play whatever we want now. And we don't actually have to work it into the movie in any creative way. I'm getting sidetracked, but in part because I think like they're too interesting. The idea of like what is a four quadrants like family movie has evolved and I will speak for myself personally and I don't claim to be speaking for anyone else I would say devolved from being something like not that it's devolved since Pete's Dragon because we'd already gone past the point which is in part why Pete's Dragon was although a success I think is still a film that 
the vast, vast majority of people will not have seen, have no interest in seeing, and won't think it's worth their time. They will judge it by its cover and be like, God, no, who wants to watch that? Where it's so, so far removed from that. Um, just a really, really good movie. Like, just just works in a really traditional sense of, I guess, to bring us a little bit to Peter Pan and Wendy, a film which is solid. It's fine. It's not Pete's Dragon. Pete's Dragon is really, really kind of top-tier Disney film, family entertainment. Uh, that's not what Peter Pan and Wendy is, but what I did feel watching it is that something that's refreshing compared to a lot of films that are quote-unquote made for kids is that David Lowry's Disney films do not talk down to the kids. They do not have throwaway, like, stupid, like... I don't know, there aren't like fart jokes. There isn't like what there isn't like what is the dumb piece of humor that we're gonna pigeonhole in here because I've gotta remember this is a movie for kids. I think he just goes out and he makes a film in a way where it's like, if I trust him what I'm making here and if this comes off right, it's gonna be funny and it's gonna be affecting for children, but that will also apply to the adults that are watching it with them. Um, which it's very refreshing. I have a lot of respect for it. Again, it's quite old-fashioned. It's like, I don't know, it's the kind of approach that someone like Spielberg, I guess, would take it to making like E.T. But that's a very far removed from what happens now, where it's like Sing 2, and we've got lots of, I don't know, animals doing like, Harry, I, I have not seen Sing or Sing 2, but my understanding is they just essentially take pop songs and they sing them very loudly with lots of color lots of lights and it's just like sensory overload for everyone which now is I'm not a, it's not a movie it's not a like you're not making films and allowing what you're doing to be what delivers feeling you're putting a bunch of stuff on screen you're being like what can we, how do we make this in What can I borrow from? What actually has value that I can just attach onto this and it will give some sort of value to what I'm doing, which is, I think, increasingly what a lot of kids' stuff has become and even more so, I guess, post-Pixar because lots of other studios, lots of other filmmakers try to work out, okay, well, Pixar became, oh, you know, Parents enjoy taking their kids to these films. But if, if Pixar never did that in a way where it's like, where it was really trying to go over the kids' heads and make jokes that were like very well concealed, but were really way, like, just weren't appropriate for the kids, which is something I think you see. Again, I may be getting sidetracked, but I think part of what works with David Lowry is like you mentioned, which I don't think you're wrong. You watch a ghost story. And I think there's some of this in ain't them body saints. Like he, he works in a style that is very much kind of magical realism. And I, I do think that's probably something Disney identified. And we're like, I could see how one of his films, like the, how the look of his films could work for a Disney movie, how he could marry those two things together. You mentioned Malik for a ghost story. I see where you're coming at from that. And there's also something like 
Malik's aesthetic, not all of it, not the spinning cameras and not everything else, but (laughs) there's, there's something there that isn't like completely allergic to what could work for a Disney movie either. You know, there's, there's a warmth, there's an openness that I think is a good fit in terms of visual style for making those films look interesting and making them pretty dynamic. So that's very different from what takes place in that space, but I think that's likely how it works pretty well and how he got there in the first place. Uh, yeah, I uh, I think that Peter Pan and Wendy is more held back by the subject matter, like what it has to do rather than Lowry's direction or anything. Like if he was like, he puts his own spin on it. It's very much a reimagining of Peter Pan to a degree. But if I would have even enjoyed, if he got to color outside the lines, even more in terms of just like taking the narrative away from what it's traditionally been. Like what I came to find out um, from this viewing is I am just was not as well versed on my Peter Pan lore. Uh, like, I got to the end of this movie and I'm like, is this about someone like he Peter Pan was just so sick of time passing and he didn't want to grow up, so he jumped off of his house and now he's in purgatory fighting pirates. That was my spiritual read of of everything I saw. Is that about right? <laughs> and then... yeah, and th- that is about right. I mean, I think Captain Hook's backstory is a new addition. Um, I have not rewatched Peter Pan since I was a child. That's not in a way with like with Pete's Dragon, where I feel like that's like some really uh, underappreciated Disney gem. It's not. It's Peter Pan. Um, definitely watched it quite a lot as, as a child, but I haven't watched it in a long time. Kind of curious, and might do that soon, just to just to get an impression. I've also I've heard in a couple of different places around this read a couple of articles heard on at least one podcast the idea that uh maybe peter pan hasn't aged well which i can certainly see with tiger lily um i can imagine how that could be the case and certainly there's plenty done with this reimagining i think to bridge that or to go to rectifying that honestly in a way that doesn't do anything to like fundamentally change or detract from people who want to go and get Peter Pan. Um, I I think the only place where this movie maybe falls down as opposed to Pete's Dragon is, and this is a general Disney problem, and we could use that for Disney and expand it to, you know, the wider Disney umbrella that brings in Marvel and Star Wars and what we're seeing on TV too. Some of it just looks pretty bad. Um, particularly all the flying sequences you're like this just looks so artificial and fake more so than any sequence like this would have looked 15 years ago just things are gone too far in terms of i guess a level of oh well we can do this all we've moved beyond green screen we're talking warehouses and you know mandalorian style setup i think that's one element to it but i think what makes pete's dragon so special is aside from the dragon that's very prominently at the center of it. Not a lot of CGI in that movie. Like, it is it is grounded in real-life environments that look pretty spectacular, and that's where you can get a filmmaker like David Lowry and let David Lowry cook. 
And there's there's some of that in Peter Pan and Wendy. Um, I think it was shot in Canada. I feel like it was like, yeah, I, I think it was Canada. Which one? Peter Pan and Wendy. Oh, okay, yeah, I saw New Zealand for Peach Dragon, so I did. I that's I that, that's track right. Of what you're talking about? Yeah, that, that's that's right for Peach Dragon. Um, well, I guess that's that's part of where the push and pull of all of this comes from, which is you and I are going to be in favor of like Disney giving a filmmaker like David Lowry a chance to do this and think that probably more often than not, you will get a better result out of doing that than you would from going the opposite way. Now, there is there are cautionary tales on this. And I think you've got to fit the right filmmaker with the right kind of works. For example, Chloe Zhao making Marvel movies, probably a bad idea. Could Chloe Zhao have made a Disney movie? Could Chloe Zhao have made like a Peter Pan and Wendy movie? I think so. I might honestly have been a better fit. Like I think if if those decisions are arrived at in a way that's smart and really considers fit, it can work out well for everyone. I had the opportunity. God, what year was this? Twenty nineteen, I would guess. Um to go to a talk with Sean Bailey, who is the president of Disney Studios um, production arm. So this applies purely to not like all productions under the Disney umbrella, but this is really the live action Walt Disney Studios stuff. Been in that job for quite some time now, has really overseen this whole wave of live action reimaginings, which I will say, I think there is some pretty good stuff there and it, they get a really, really bad rap. And I understand why that's the case because the stuff that is bad is so, so bad. Um, Robert Zemeckis' Pinocchio being maybe the absolute nadir, possibly for all filmmaking. Um, <laughs> but this has kind of been part of a wider Disney project that has been pretty central to how they do things. And I asked Sean Bailey at that, I was like, to no one's surprise, my primary thing that I wanted to know was, what about David Lowry? How does like, how does that happen? Is that something you're going to continue to look to do? Um, And the answer was that they are always looking out for filmmakers like that and opportunities, and they just felt like Larry was a really good fit, which I think has panned out. Whether they're always looking out for filmmakers who fit that bill, I think is a very different matter. And honestly, I think is probably not true. Because even if you're to just look at some of those live action stuff, I mean, you had Tim Burton do Alice in Wonderland, uh, Kenneth Branagh do Cinderella. Maybe John Favreau doing the Jungle Book fits this bill, although that now feels completely different because Favreau has moved into an entirely different tier. True, one I will just say, Jungle Book is good. Um, Favreau, good director, which I don't. It's kind of sadly I don't know if we'll ever see the Favreau of you know his early career or even the Favreau of Chef again, like that version of John Favreau, because. Well, he's got bigger fish to fry. He's Mr. Star Wars. Um, 
Guy Ritchie does Aladdin. Favreau comes back for Lion King. Like, these are not no-name or little-known filmmakers. Rob Marshall with the Little Mermaid movie that's about to come out. Like, these are all a certain kind of filmmaker, and David Lowry does not fit that bill. Um, How did I block out of my mind Guy Ritchie's Aladdin? (laughs) Honestly, I think the film is not as bad as everyone made out to be. It's got some pretty weird stuff in it. Um, probably doesn't even view as good now, like most Will Smith things. There's probably just a weird dynamic of like, God, is the genie gonna slap someone? But in terms of Guy Ritchie projects, one of the recent ones, I was like, yeah, it's not that bad. It's better than a lot of the other ones. Um, one of the things that was announced not that long after I was at that talk show, baby, was Barry Jenkins directing a Lion King sequel. Sequel? I might be wrong. Prequel? I think it's a prequel. It's a, it's a prequel. It's a Mufasa film. Um, it's like the Godfather part two, but only the, uh, oh, the De Niro parts. <laughs> sure. But this has been something that I feel was kind of derided in some quarters at the time or just left a lot of people to kind of scratch their head in this very 90s way which is like focused on selling out where I don't know I just don't see it like that like if Barry Jenkins can do that and could do it really well I think that's an itch that if I was a director and I'd won an Oscar for Moonlight and I'd made one of the greatest, you know, limited series of all time with the Underground Railroad, and most people just like ignored it, let it come and go. Um, Beale Street, another masterpiece. Like this opportunity comes along, I'd probably be interested because, yeah, let's flip up and let's try that. Like, what what have I got to lose from trying that at some point in my career? I mean, the other thing is. If you're making films like David Lowry is, or even like Barry Jenkins has to a certain extent, I'm not saying these people are, you know, down to their last cent on a day-to-day basis, but these are not majorly wealthy people, and I don't begrudge them from at some point being like, hey, what if I channel this success into a big payday, a meaningful payday that could, you know, take care of me for the rest of my life, maybe help set up future generations of my family, whatever it might be. Like, we haven't really mentioned that before now too, but I'm sure that's a factor in David Lowry's decisions to be like, oh yeah, I'll do Disney movies every now and then. I don't really see the issue. Because part of that is then going to empower him to go back and be like, yeah, okay, let's make a ghost story for $10,000. And I could take the risk and see if a distributor will pick it up or whatever it might be. Do you get any of this anxiety do you share any of it when it is for example a barry jenkins like figure who's gonna go and make a lion king movie i mean i know that is probably not top of your list or my list of what we would like to see barry jenkins do next but i guess my my answer to that question would always be i want to see barry jenkins do next whatever barry jenkins wants to do next and in this case if if this is what he wants to do next like I want to see it. It could be an absolute disaster. It could be an incredible failure. But 
I want to see it. In a way, that's probably similar to when you hear like, oh, Greta Gerwig is making a Barbie movie. And like we're down that road. We've seen trailers. We've seen promotional stuff. Still don't know if that movie is going to be one of the better films of recent years or one of the worst. But if Greta Gerwig wants to do that, I'm interested. And I think the same kind of applies for me with Barry Jenkins. Are you on that or do you see some of the concerns? Where are you at on the whole idea of, I guess, artists, quote unquote artists? Although let's take the let's take the quotations away because Barry Jenkins certainly is an artist and the idea of selling out. I so first of all, uh, I worry about them getting lost into the machine to the degree that they don't make the types of films that drew me to them in the first place. That being said, if that's the direction that filmmaker wants to take their career and they see the they see the financial rewards that come with that and they think that still that's creatively what they want to do, they should have every right to do that, obviously. Selfishly, I do get that similar anxiety um, from something like that happening. Like you said, if you end up like John Favreau, and it's not necessarily like he was like my favorite director, but like Chef's just like a really small, charming movie that is rewatchable and enjoyable and is very much not like a marvel star wars entity or whatever uh so if that seems like something that like you said may never happen again for him and him making that those types of films so for example if if i did not already have the the knowledge that david lowry is making a music drama for a24 with Anne hathaway <laughs> maybe i would be a little concerned that he's going to become only the disney guy now but i think I think the type of career that Lowry is having and the type of career that Barry Jenkins could now have with this Lion King opportunity is those are the kind of directors that I'm going to want to have their cake and eat it too, if that makes sense. So if they can find that balance and you know, if that would both quell my anxiety and also make me actually excited to see a Disney movie from time to time. Um, I mean, even something like and this is very different because this is not like studio machine IP or anything like that. But like Richard Linklater dropping School of Rock into the point in his career when he did uh, directors that are willing to do things like that. But also it, he'll go make the next before movie or boyhood. Well, or, or I feel like off, off the top of my head, that's like around the time he was making like Waking Life. So he's making yeah. like weird rotoscope animation like really weird rotoscope animations, and then he goes and makes one of the best studio family films of the twenty first century. If maybe maybe the best, like it's it's right up there in the discussion with with Skiller Rock. So yeah, I think that's a good example. Like I, I think the one thing I'd say with a filmmaker like Jenkins, I've no worry about. Oh, Jenkins is gonna only end up doing like Disney stuff. Like every everything he does as a director just seems to be informed by like what would Claire Denis do. And like <laughs> where Barry Jenkins, I guess, DNA as a filmmaker comes from and kind of if you're to just look at what are his inspirations and his his reference points, I, I don't think it's going to be an issue. I'm just I'm fascinated by Disney being like, yeah, OK, this guy has a vision for this that makes sense for us to take a swing at it, particularly after Chloe Zhao failed with Marvel, because I think that's something that could have just killed anything like this for quite some time 
Um, but Barry Jenkins should have the kind of the cultural cachet to pull that off and to go and try something. Very interested to see what that might be like. I'm also interested to see for Larry, is this the end of this part of his arc? Because in part, I don't know. I don't know what Disney's approach is going to be with this ongoing live action reimaginings. They've definitely hit a lot of the major films. Some of the more notable ones that haven't been remade are coming very soon. Very soon might be overstating. But for example, um, the Snow White film with Rachel Ziegler is has shot, I think. I think it's shot. It, it's very close, or it may have been in production, it may now have halted um, like some other stuff due to the writer strike, potentially. But that's the kind of point where that was at. And then even when you look at how Disney have increasingly handled some of this, like Lady and the Tramp was one that was made like a made-for-TV movie, and they dropped that on Disney+. Plus, and it was kind of one of the pre-Disney Plus launch planned things, which honestly, pretty weird to just be like, let's not make a good Lady and the Tramp and release it in theaters. Um, and then when Peter Pan gets this straight to Disney Plus 2, I don't know. That's that's tough to reckon with. I do believe the day we record this, Disney have made massive, massive progress, supposedly, um, in reducing their Disney Plus losses. So maybe they know something that we don't, and dropping stuff like this on Disney Plus is good for business. But it doesn't feel like it would be better for business than the kind of theatrical audience that has always been out there for these kind of films. So I don't know how much is left there. And I don't know how much someone like David Larry might fit into that. I don't even know if Peter Pan and Wendy should be taken as a reflection. Like it going straight to Disney Plus as a reflection of what they think of this movie or where they're at with the relationship with him. Who knows? Um, I think whether he needs to do it is also interesting. Because even if he had ideas that were more ambitious or to take place on a greater scale, I think the Green Knight is a very strong calling card for being able to do that. But to also have had the studio experience of Pete's Dragon, of Peter Pan and Wendy, I think studios should feel pretty good about giving David Larry money to go and make a movie. It's He's very proven in that regard at this point. And beyond that, he might just want to take all the creative swings he wants. And... It could lead to, honestly, him leaning into a lot more kind of weird and wonderful stuff. You alluded to Mother Mary, which is his his next slide of project, a music drama film produced and distributed by A24, which is going to star Anne Hathaway and Michaela Cole with music from Jack Antonoff and Charlie XCX. Jack Antonoff, what's he not got his hands in it? He actually uh, wrote the opening monologue uh, to this podcast that that I gave. Um, so, yeah, he's the man needs to take a nap. I think to circle back to Larry, I watch this film and I see I see David Larry in it. I don't see the best of David Larry. I will almost certainly never watch Peter Pan and Wendy again. But in saying that, 
I don't know. There's a part of me, I don't know if you can relate to this. We are both, um, neither of us are fathers of children, Andrew. Um, of dogs, maybe, but not of children. I still, I watch something like this, I guess the age I am now, through the prism of, if I had kids, it's it's something that increasingly goes through my mind. If I had kids, how would I feel about one showing them this, or what? what is the cumulative effect of films like this to them? And this, for me, probably works in a way that would be different to a lot of people who, the kind of questions they might ask themselves are like, you know, is this appropriate or is this the kind of media I want to show? Like all of that would apply, but there's also, is this like, for me, it would be, is this, are these movies? Is this the kind of thing I want to introduce to a child at an age where it's like, this is what they're going to get to understand of. Oh, well, this is what film is. And I'm interested in this, or I'm excited in this, and my expectations are set kind of based on an understanding of this is part of the broader framework. And as I alluded to earlier, I mean, the vast majority of stuff that I think is supposed to fit that bill, I just would not feel great about in a whole variety of ways. There's some stuff where it's just like, holy shit, there's a lot of violence with this. This is it's kind of crazy. This is the thing now. Or there's a lot of stuff where you're just like, this is just giving nothing. There's no, there are no vegetables on this plate, Andrew. There's nothing for the mind. There's nothing for the spirit. There's just, there's nothing. This is just purely to, you know, supposedly give parents an hour of uh, maybe peace. I don't know. A half an hour of, you know, maybe hoping that you'll get peace for that hour. But coming out of it, what does it, does it solve problems? Does it, does it give anything to anyone? No, when I see Larry's films, though, I see something like Pete's Dragon. First and foremost, like five kids, would I would I be happy? Would I want to show my kids Pete's Dragon? One thousand percent. And that in its own right is refreshing. And I do think is evidence of the kind of thing that can happen when you have a filmmaker of this quality and who works in the kind of mode that he does. And you give them these tools to play with. And that to me just kind of will remain endlessly fascinating for a long time, regardless of what his career looks like from here, whether his indie stuff continues to hit in terms of critical acclaim or in terms of kind of breakout box office success in a relative sense, or if he continues to make studio stuff, whether that's family films or Disney or something completely different, I don't know. Um, but that's something that I think I'll just continue to interrogate and kind of work through or track. Yeah, I don't I don't think I have too much more to add to that. Um, uh, other than go uh, if if you you have a family, you're looking for uh, a Friday evening watch do peach dragon start with that if you're uh someone that struggles with the existential meaning of what it means to be human and where our place in the universe is and what it means to grieve what it means to love someone and what it means to lose someone then go watch a ghost story and just like uh 
like uh, the Brewers have a bad loss on a mo- Monday evening, Friday evening, whenever I rewatched it, and if you just want to just recognize your place as a speck of dust in this orb uh, rotating around the sun, then that's the movie for you. Real perspective, you know, if your favorite team loses one of 162 <laughs> baseball games, you just need you need that pick me up. Pete's Dragon's Wait. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh it's like an ice cream cone when you had a bad day. A ghost story. That's how I'm gonna describe it. I don't know if a ghost story is an ice cream cone if you've had a bad day. But yeah, let's let's go with it and let's hope some people check it out. We'll see how that goes. Anyway. I would just like I would recommend just checking out basically all these films. Like that's when again it's rare for a filmography this varied. So seeing a director work in all of these different ways and yet retain something at its core that is distinctly kind of David Lowry's signature is interesting and I think it's instructive and it's something that does reflect maybe a more old-fashioned way of working but also something that would be a better way forward if we could just see some more of that so if you haven't watched some of these films or any of these films I would recommend going and checking out the works of David Lowry Alright, I think that does it for this episode. Next up, we're going to talk about Succession. We'll do another check-in. It's been a while. Big things have been happening, and there's probably more big things to come in the episode that will air between now and when we will record. But after episode 8 of Succession, we will have an episode. If we're lucky, we may even be joined by some fellow GSPNers. Um, Either later next week or early the following week we'll also have a pod on Bo's Afraid and the films of Ari Aster I'm looking forward to that I've not seen it yet it has not been released in my part of the world yet hence the delay but we will be talking about Bo's Afraid and Hereditary Midsommar I don't know maybe I get you to watch his shorts have you ever seen any of Ari Aster's shorts uh no this probably won't surprise you. They are almost universally deeply, deeply fucked up. Um, some arguably more so than any feature he's made so far. Um, interesting, interesting viewing. So, yeah, I feel that, like might, that might be worth doing. I feel like I, I think heard you a did. Did you about one of them on a podcast once? Was that for me? Was that our podcast? No, yeah. I think I, when I thought about that there, picture. I was like, I actually think you might have watched, but I think I'm confusing with another friend. Uh, well, we'll work through that. I, I think I will probably get you to check out those shorts. So, yeah, that's what's coming up. That's what you got to look forward to. If you like what you hear, make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Let's make time for this. You should also check out the rest of the GSPN podcasts. We're primarily focused on Wisconsin sports. I didn't I didn't actually mention it, I don't think, up top, but David Larry, Milwaukee native, um, Texan filmmaker, and associated, I guess, more closely with uh, a certain kind of wave of Austin-based, I feel like, um, filmmakers who've emerged from the independent scene and had some success. But 
born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, lived there in the early years of his life. So, David Larry, if you're listening, I mean, we also have a Milwaukee Books podcast. If you go subscribe to the Eurostep Podcast Network, you've got the Eurostep, you got Win in Six, two great books podcasts, all in the one feed. If you want to listen to Milwaukee Brewers talk, we've got Cruiser for Bruising. Andrew and I take the reins over there, too, and we talk all things Brewers baseball. And beyond that, we have a Green Bay Packers podcast, Talk of the Tundra, hosted by Numac. Jordan Tresky. Make sure to check it out. You can go to gspn.info for basically everything else. All things GSPN, you will find that link. You can get into the Discord there. You can go check out our repod page where you can listen to our pods and if you have any thoughts on an episode of Make Time for This, feel free to go and share them there. Until next time, thanks as always to all of you for listening. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Adam. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.